We're in Acts chapter 10, and as you know, we've been going through this series of up, in, and out. And this morning, I'm going to begin chapter 10. We might need another bite at it, but we'll see how we get on. I certainly am not going to cover the whole chapter. But as I uh, have come with all of the mixed emotions of uh, many of you to this morning's service, I'm conscious that there are words on a page that I've been thinking about, and I'm just praying that God would take them, even if I'm reading them out in a fairly wooden way, and use them by His Spirit to work in our hearts and speak to us, uh, even if it's in a very simple, quiet word of come, receive, and go. The Bible study guide that we're using cover to cover opens this section of Acts chapter 10 with a question about change. And the question is, what are some of the big changes you've experienced recently, and how do you feel about them? I'm thinking of uh, some answers to that question. My dad was on the phone yesterday about his iPad. Uh, Dad's 86. Mobile banking for an 86-year-old is interesting. Or maybe you've moved house or job or had children recently, and you know why these things are some of the top stressors in our lives. We think about change around us in this part of Belfast and the number of nationalities is a huge, significant change. Acts chapter 10 is a fascinating study about change and how church leaders struggle with adjusting to a new reality. There are lots of light bulb jokes that are coming into my head right now, but I'm not going to go there. Church and change. But as a church experiencing change and preparing for more moves coming up, this is a vital chapter. The story of Cornelius and his con conversion is the longest narrative in Acts, and the events that Peter and Cornelius experience are repeated three times. We heard that last week about Saul. And both of these conversion stories are foundations for the Gentile mission, which basically is a word that could mean anything beyond local in its broadest sense. And it is a major change moment, as the words of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a moment when those words are being fulfilled. Peter himself had preached about how this good news was for the ends of the earth in chapter 2, verse 17. But he hadn't quite grasped the radical implications of these words. In fact, John Stott in his commentary and comments about this chapter say, 
it is not so much about the conversion of Cornelius as about the conversion of Peter. And so as we think about Acts, about being an account of how the gospel moved out from its roots, the question at this point seems to be how far out? And maybe that's a question for us as we think about up, in, and out. How far out? Jesus had told Peter that he had given him the keys of the kingdom. And he'd been unlocking doors to people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, really stretching that out. But for some reason, he thinks he's gone far enough. My dad's online banking experience has taken him into a new world, but the usual reaction when I'm trying to get him to actually do a transaction is, I think I've gone far enough. I think we'll just leave it for today. That's enough to be going on with. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to ask you to stand for part of it. And we may just introduce some of the big themes. But as we read it, I want to just ask some questions about ourselves and what's happening here in Windsor. And have we gone far enough? Or do we need to go out a bit more? Because in this chapter, we're confronted with whether we have experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel ourselves. Whether, like the early church, we know the game plan. We know where it should go. But we've yet to fully experience it. Or whether our community, this area of Belfast, knows what is meant to be going on here. That there is transforming power which rescues everyone from either godless pursuits or religious rituals that miss the power of change. So let's come to God's word humbly. As Cornelius says to Peter, we're all here in the presence of God to hear what you have to say to us. And that's how we come to the word of God this morning. I'm going to read from verse 1 and then halfway through verse 23, I'll ask you to stand. I'm not just thinking about David's knee here. But uh, there's a long chapter. Sorry, Walter, you can sit for a wee minute. I'll uh, call you to stand. But it's great to have enthusiastic participation. Thank you. It's not Walter. Sorry. Let's, let's turn to God's Word. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up 
as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent Cornelius sent by Cornelius, found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them. Peter went down, said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that you could hear what you have to say, so that he could hear what you have to say. And Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read the rest of the chapter. The next day, Peter started out with them, and one of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask you, ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, 
And it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what's right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Please be seated. There's two things that I want to mention about this passage. I'm going to deal with one of them today. And that is this. Very simply, the gospel is for all people. And the second thing is that the gospel unites all people. But you might have to wait for that or work it out yourself. But if we wonder why the gospel doesn't transform us and our church the way that we see in Acts, or maybe change us in a way that we think is appropriate, it may be that we are struggling to believe that this gospel and God's heart is for all people. I think it was actually the same for the church in Acts, going through that same struggle of believing this basic truth. And what we can read in a few chapters took time for that church to experience and work out. Peter was coming to the gospel and selecting the parts that he could cope with and like a great buffet set out before him he was leaving the bits that weren't fitting into his way of thinking. And doing so, he, he missed the most important bits. 
And so in this vision that's repeated three times, in a sense, he's shown the full menu. All sorts of unacceptable animals that God was now making acceptable in his kingdom. And God orchestrates this meeting between Peter and someone who was not his type of person, like a kind of evangelistic blind date. God brings these two people together, preparing them each for this meeting to teach Peter that the gospel is for all people. There is a kind of tribalism in missions that can be seen in the history of church expansion where we produce people and customs like our own. It's often guarded and protected like the people who despised William Carey's desire to evangelize areas of India. If God is going to convert them, he'll do it himself without your help. Thank you very much. But in this story, by the time Peter reaches Cornelius' house in verse 28, he says they already know it's wrong for him to be in that place. He's had the vision, but he's still struggling to work out what all of this means. So let's go with Peter and follow in his footsteps and see what it might mean for us. If we're going to experience the gospel's power to transform us and our community, we need to be ready to be socially unacceptable at points. Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure and unclean. That's his great statement of confidence when he meets Cornelius. He doesn't actually tell the whole story, of course. He's like a lot of preachers, a lot of us who, who, who share the bits that we're comfortable with, and we don't tell the story of the three objections that we put up saying, no, God, we're not going to do this. But uh, at least Peter has got to this point. And he finally realizes, verse 34, that God has no favorites, and he sees more clearly in his thinking. And he realizes that his thinking has been too small. Before we put too much distance between ourselves and the experience of the early church, is there not some evidence that the same expanded thinking is beginning to break out here? The change begins when people set aside time to seek God in prayer. That's what happened in Acts 10. There's a mixture of fear and uncertainty when God begins to speak and answer prayer. Have we not experienced that? As we set aside time to seek God and ask what He would have us do? What happens then is that the church gets a clearer vision of what should be. And there should be no surprise when the message is, move out. So this morning, as we come to this chapter, I want to ask us, ask myself this question, how far out? Lord, what are you saying to us 
How are you dealing with us as you're opening our eyes, as you're answering prayer, as you're giving us a clearer vision of the kind of people you want us to be? And we've been doing our thing each month, giving to the poor through storehouse. <clears throat> and that's great. But we believe God has so much more to show us about the role of reaching people in this community with the gospel who are poor in all sorts of ways. And one example of the neglected group of people that we have been thinking about who are asking deep and searching questions have been those coping with autism. And God has been opening our eyes to ways in which we can serve people this good news. Could it be that God is saying to us here in Windsor, the gospel is for all people? And I want you to keep moving out. Peter's prejudice is shattered. And the point of chapter 10 is to show that Jesus is, in fact, Lord of all. He is the universal hope of the nations. And this message is for all. He is the judge of all, verse 42, of the living and the dead, of everyone. There is no one who falls outside the category of verse 42. So a question, are we ready to tell anyone? I doubt if we would doubt that question theoretically. We, we know that this is a message for anyone. But as I think about it, I have to ask myself, do I have restrictions in my mind about who to speak to? There's no problem with speaking to people like ourselves, and that's a good thing to do. But do I have subtle prejudices where I think God is not interested in the salvation of people who are not like me? I do have to say, you Windsor Baptist Church are a wonderfully welcoming church. And this is not about using a big stick to make you feel like you should be doing something that you're not yet doing. There's a lot of this moving out and reaching out going on. People of all backgrounds find a warm welcome here. But this part of the Bible tells us that it has to be a deeply held conviction, not just a cultural way of operating. It must be something that has gripped us so deeply that we are convinced this message is for everyone. It cannot be passively expressed. So if we're going to destroy some of the taboos, it may mean that the poor are welcomed here. Some of you work with and know people whose backgrounds are radically different from the majority of people in this church, and we largely are a comfortable middle-class church. I don't like using the class language, but that's a fact. That's who we are. 
And yet many of us rub shoulders, some of you rub shoulders with people who are radically different. I remember when I was working for IFE's, the first gospel project that we uh, introduced uh, in all of the universities around the UK and Ireland, included giving a copy of Luke's gospel to every student, and so half a million copies of Luke's gospel were produced. I brought them to Queen's, went around the uh, various groups and went to Hall's small group and met one, Kieran Lynch, who had lots of these kind of friends who wouldn't be seen dead near a church. And uh, we were, I was enthusiastically saying, look, this is not just about giving the gospel away. It's, it's about saying, here's something that really matters to me. Would you read it? Uh, and Kieran's classic response at the time said, if I gave that to my friends, they would chew it up, spit it out. And Yet he was the greatest exponent of uh, that kind of gospel outreach. But that is the reaction that many of our friends who are not used to this kind of environment might come off with. There is no way I'd be seen dead in a place like that. The question is, should you bring those people to church? Should you let those people hear the gospel? The right answer, which starts here, it starts in our hearts. We, yeah, we know it on paper like Peter did from Acts chapter 1, but there needs to be something else going on, is that we welcome and bring to church people from all ethnic backgrounds, all social levels, all types of people. And we need to be intentionally naive as a church because we will assume that Jesus rules here and overcomes all of the awkwardness that will crop up when we're sitting beside people who are so different from us. Because love covers a multitude of awkwardness and sin and things that we get wrong. And that's the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so the assumption is that everyone is welcome in this church without walls. That's who we are. And the first thing to do then is to invite anyone. I don't have all that much more to say, but stick with me in this because what happens when you invite anyone here, apart from the fact that we may have difficulty finding a seat. Well, what happens when socially awkward things happen? You bring a friend who feels awkward and you understand how they feel and why they feel that. What happens then? What happens when the friend that you bring turns to the person beside them and said, could you give me a couple of quid for cigarettes? And they're wondering, I'm not sure that it's for cigarettes. What happens then? Well, I think first thing to do is invite anyone. And the second thing to do is change the church. And we don't like that. It's socially awkward and it's difficult for us. But if you have a person from a background who doesn't have a church and who feels uncomfortably here, your job is to invite them and then change the church 
until it becomes their family and their place and where they belong and where they can experience this power of God transforming their lives. And I'm not saying anything about changing the message or changing the beliefs of the church. And they might ask you questions that you need help with. Well, how are we going to train one another to be the sort of family about how to handle money, how to handle challenges that come our way, how to deal with our family as it grows and expands. And this equally applies to the good people in our community, like Cornelius, people like that who are sometimes the last people we will invite. We're maybe reluctant to invite them because we admire their generosity. They're leading upright lives. They might even pray but we need to invite them because they need a savior. Cornelius had a vision and was told to get someone who knows Christ and let them tell him the gospel. Let's allow that to take hold of our hearts. And as you believe that Christ died for all, God has no favorites let us repent of any small thinking. We believe as we do that, that the Spirit will fall, not just on us, but on our community. And the challenge is really left with the Lord. How far depends on the people that He's going to bring into our lives if we're saying yes I now know that you have no favorites. There's just one more area of application which I think fits here, and this is, are we committed to the gospel going everywhere? I'm thinking of our missionary awareness. We are a church with a reputation of a missionary awareness, but it shows itself in the time and effort that we put into world mission. And we've been following the adventures of Dorothea, and I think we should learn from Dorothea, passing the age of retirement, but not averse to going into a difficult situation. She had every reason to say that the Mundu version of the Jesus film was just too difficult, but she used the benefits of the internet, the prayer support, mobilize, all that, that led to this week's email saying that the job was done. And there will be people now watching the Jesus film in Mundu who will be hearing this for the first time in their own heart language. Praise God for people he will speak to through that film. People who are racially, economically, linguistically, in every possible way so different from Dorothea and from you and from me. But if we're not bothered about world mission, we're really saying God is not interested in the gospel going to anybody unlike us. We're more interested really in hearing what he has to say. Are we committed to going to everyone? Would you consider going if God speaks to you as he did to Peter? 
If not, why not? Well, there's lots of reasons for going. There's lots of reasons for not going. And it doesn't mean everybody should resign their jobs tomorrow. But the point is, what difference will mission make to us? What dent will it make in our wallets? What amount of time will it take in our diaries, in our prayers? What reading will inform our thinking? And so if this gospel is for anyone, and we're saying we're prepared to go out further, anywhere, then I believe God will, by His Holy Spirit, transform us into a church without walls and demonstrate to this world that there is a hope that anyone, anyone can lay hold of and know life in all its fullness. just want to say as I close, I'm asking myself these questions. I fall so short of believing this gospel. I need to repent and grow. And yet Jesus knows that, and He invites us to come and trust Him. And He knows all about the efforts that we have made and the distance that we still have to go. But it's about seeing that God has no favorites. And he longs to see more people on the Lisburn Road coming to trust him. And he longs to see more of the Mundus and the other people that we have committed ourselves to reaching discover that he is Lord of all. Lord, have mercy.